0: Nearly four decades ago, I worked as an auditor in the bad loans department of a major bank. My responsibilities, among other things, were to go into the field and verify the various types and forms of collateral that supported these bad loans and figure out what we could get for it when we took it to liquidation. And one of those... uh, bad loans was to a coal mining company in West Virginia. And so I had the opportunity to travel to West Virginia to the coal mines and to go down into a coal mine and actually to verify the existence of the coal mining equipment that secured this multi-million dollar loan and uh, there are many uh, experiences some of which I've shared I think through the years with you about being in a coal mine it's really uh, it's quite a different experience to be sure the darkness is so thick you could literally cut it but one of the things that was true about being in that coal mine was that the faintest of light you could see and In this particular case, we needed to crawl on our hands and knees to follow this glimmer of light that led us down a mine shaft to the very head of the mine where the mining equipment was located. So following the light was the way through the darkness. And I was thinking about that this week because living in sin, in bondage to sin, is living in darkness. It's like being in a coal mine. And there's only one way out, and that is to crawl to the darkness or to the light, to to see the light and to crawl towards the light. So, as you open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 32, the 32nd psalm, we're going to look at that this morning, the 32nd psalm, a psalm of David. This is a psalm that was penned by David. It's a psalm of forgiveness. It was penned by David following his devastating adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent judicial murder of her husband, Uriah. David was living under the heavy hand of the Lord for his sin for a period of about a year or so. Eventually, uh, through the prophet Nathan, David came to repent of his sin and confess it publicly, and he penned Psalm 51, which is his confession psalm. Psalm 32 has also been penned from that same incident, but a little bit later, after David's peace of mind had returned to him, and he began to reflect upon the reality of this dreadful period in his life, and he, pawn- he, he penned Psalm twenty, or excuse me, thirty-two. Psalm thirty-two. So it's a reflective psalm. It's a, a psalm of a man who has found the light, who has gotten out of the darkness, and is looking back upon it and the lessons that he learned. Now, just looking at the psalm together here, there are a couple of, of items I just want to note quickly as we move into this. You'll notice under the heading it says blessedness of forgiveness and trust in God. It says a psalm of David, a maskel. A maskel is a Hebrew term and it means essentially that this is a contemplative or a a teaching psalm. In other words that this psalm is written to instruct and it's designed for us to contemplate the lessons that are contained here within. And it's Concerning the joy of a man whose sins have been forgiven, and to contemplate that reality. The structure of the psalm begins with a, a period of reflection, and then it transitions from reflection to instruction. And so the back half of the psalm, the second half of the psalm, are the lessons that David has learned from the devastating experience of his of his of that period of his life with Bathsheba and Uriah. You'll also notice in the margins of your Bible, probably, the word selah. It appears three times in this psalm. And the word selah is an interesting word. It's an enigmatic word in that uh, we're not really sure exactly what it means. There's a, there's a diversity of opinion as to exactly what this notation is. It may mean, it's likely a musical notation, and it may mean a pause in the music, it's possible that it means a crescendo, or it could be a musical interlude, but in any case, it, it appears to be designed to, to cause the hearer to reflect at that point. So, proceeding through the psalm, we find it three times, the end of verse 4, the end of verse 5, and the end of verse 7, and it's designed to make us reflective upon the, what we have just heard or read from this particular psalm. So... With those basic textual markers out of the way, what I want to do here, as in the time before us, looking at this psalm, is I want to draw out some principles. I want to draw out some principles from this psalm, actually six of them. I want to draw out six principles regarding the process by which we can escape from the darkness, the darkness of sin and guilt, and that happens when we find ourselves far from God. So if you're here this morning and... And God is, you find yourself far from God. God seems far from you. This psalm is, is designed for you. If you're not in that place this morning, maybe, maybe you came in here this morning and, and, and God is really close to you right now, this psalm is still for you because it will only be a matter of time before you too will find that place where you have fallen into sin and you need to find your way back. And this psalm is designed to help us do it. So, first... Principle here this morning in verses 1 and 2 is simply this. In order to escape the darkness of sin and guilt, we must first be convinced that escape is even possible. In order to escape, we need to be convinced that escape is even, even possible. In other words, we need to be convinced that God can and God will forgive us. That God can forgive us and that God will forgive us. We need to be certain We need to be certain that a life lived in the light is better than a light lived in the darkness. And so, David, who has escaped from the darkness, describes for us what it's like to live in the light. And you see it here in the first couple of verses of this psalm. He writes in verse 1 How blessed is he whose transgression is covered, or excuse me, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says that forgiveness brings about a state of blessedness. That to be forgiven is a is a blessed condition to find oneself in. And in fact, you could translate this blessedness here in terms of extreme happiness. In other words, it is a a wonderful, delightful, happy place to be when one is forgiven. In fact, I think we can say that true happiness can only exist when we know that our sins are forgiven and that God is at peace with us. In fact, in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, in verse 1, he speaks of what's called the first fruit of justification, and that is the peace with God. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we're at peace with God, although that's true, but that God is at peace with us. It is a place of extreme happiness, extreme prosperity, to know that God is at peace with you. And that your sin has been forgiven. And I want you to notice here in in these first couple of verses of Psalm 32 that it is God who's active here. It is God who brings about the forgiveness. He's the one who forgives our transgressions. He's the one who covers our sins. He's the one who imputes not our iniquities to us. And the reason for that is simple enough that sin is first and foremost an offense against God. And David says that exact same thing in Psalm 51 in verse 4 that that against you and you only have I sinned. David recognizes that sin is first and foremost an offense against God. And because that's true, God's forgiveness is essential to our well-being, both now and for eternity. And for eternity. Now Paul quotes this. Psalm, Psalm 32, in his presentation of justification by faith in Romans chapter 4. You can, you can keep your thumb here in Psalm 32 and just flip over there quickly enough to, to Romans chapter 4, where Paul is is bringing to bear Old Testament passages in proof of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, now to the one who works his wage is not credited as a favor but as what is due in other words if you can earn your justification then it's what's due due to you it's just a wage that's paid but verse 5 but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited as righteousness just as david also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom god credits righteousness apart from works Verses 7 and 8 Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. In other words, the place of the extreme blessing of God, the extreme happiness of God, is the place of justification. It's the place of knowing that we have been forgiven, that our sins have been covered by God Himself. For it is the Lord who must forgive. It is the Lord who must cover. It is the Lord who must impute not our transgressions against us. Oh, beloved, we are without hope. We are without hope unless God acts. And the basis of the mercy of God and the forgiveness of my sin and yours is the shed blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who came, who bled, who died, who suffered the guilt and the penalty that is due the sin of his people. Blessed is the man whose sin has been forgiven. The writer goes on, David goes on to say, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now as Christians, we, will, we readily acknowledge that God's forgiveness is possible and essential. And yet, and yet, Sometimes we lie and deceive ourselves into actually running from the forgiveness that we know is necessary in the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Beloved, it is is deceitfully dangerous to attempt to conceal reality, to attempt to conceal reality, and yet all too often we can fall into that kind of a trap. But the, but the problem is we can never, ever put away the nagging truth that we stand guilty, that we are in need of the forgiveness of God. We can try to fool God and our neighbor with a false piety. We can come in here on a Sunday morning and, and sing all the songs and pay attention in the sermon and in the meantime regard iniquity in our own hearts to deceive ourselves even drown out the voice of our own conscience. But in the end, there's no evading that truth. There's no evading it. And deceitfulness is not just a Christian problem. It is not just a Christian problem. It affects all people. People will readily acknowledge the need to be forgiven. But it's deceit that keeps people from coming and receiving the forgiveness that they need. They either deceive themselves by, by convincing themselves that their sin is not that big a deal, that, that God will, you know, in the end, he'll overlook it, or they deceive themselves into thinking that, that somehow God operates on this big cosmic scale and, and their good life uh, will far outweigh their sin and then in the end, God will accept them into his presence if you're here this morning and, and that's your thought process is that I'm okay because I'm basically a good person and in the end I'll be okay, then, then I'm here to tell you from the, from the word of God directly, just speaking to you, you are deceived. You are deceiving yourself. For the word of God is very, very clear. It says the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin Justifies death. It brings about death, the penalty of God. And yet that same verse also says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come to Christ. Flee to the cross of Christ. Give up on your self-deception and let Christ save you. Let Christ save you. Beloved, the first principle to escape the darkness, is, is to believe that it's possible to even do so. Secondly, the second principle is this. Guilt is wretched. Guilt is a wretched thing. Again, the typical response when we have transgressed is to seek to cover it up. It's to seek to cover it up. It's to the, it's the hope that no one knows and that somehow the, the guilt will go away. We, we, we can see it all the way back in the garden. When Adam took of the fruit and he ate, the, the first thing they did was seek to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness, and to hide from God. And man and women have been seeking to cover themselves and to hide from God ever since. So it's to, it's to try to evade. But, but God will not allow his children to wallow in the mud forever. We are no longer pigs. We are people. And our habitat has been changed. And if you're a child of God this morning, you may slip and fall, to be sure. You may fall into the mud, but you'll find no comfort living there. There's no comfort for you living there in the mud. Listen, David tried for a year. David tried for a year to evade the guilt of his own sin. And it was the words of the prophet Nathan, finally confronting him and saying, David, you are that man that broke him and brought him to the place of forgiveness. And as David reflects back upon that year and the experiences of that year and and the tremendous burden of guilt that he carried upon his conscience, it nearly consumed him. The hand of the Lord weighed heavy upon his conscience and and. Look how he describes that year of agony in verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, it was like David's very life was shriveling up. He, he was like a he was like an unwatered plant in the heat of the Palestinian summer, and he was shriveling and dying under the weight of his guilt. <clears throat> Beloved, there is nothing worse in life than an awakened conscience coupled with an unbroken heart there is nothing worse than an awakened conscience coupled with an unbroken heart in other words there is nothing worse than living under the burden of guilt it will shrivel you up it is a gift of god though it is a gift of god it is it is like when you touch a hot stove and you burn your finger and you pull your hand away, that is a gift of God. And the conscience operates in the same way. And it is the it is the torments of our conscience, and it is the painful consequences of our sin that God uses to draw his children back to himself. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 and verse 6 speaks of this as the as the loving discipline of a father who will not allow their children to wander and to and to live in the darkness forever guilt is wretched but is designed to draw us back to god third third repentance is essential repentance is essential the the psalm turns at this point david has been He's been reflecting. This is a reflective verse as well, but it's a turning point in the psalm. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, verse 5, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Well, this is an amazing truth. This is an amazing truth. Because what it says is is essentially that the only way out, the only path back from the misery of sin and the burden upon my conscience Because of the guilt of my transgression before God, the only way back is to to humbly and voluntarily condemn myself before God. In other words, to, to see myself and admit who I really am in the presence of God. We have to silence the internal defense lawyer. And we all have him on retainer, isn't that right? And he is quick to come to our rescue. And we must silence him. We must abandon our defenses. We must give up our rationalizations. We must reject our justifications. And we must stop minimizing the seriousness of our transgression. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I didn't try to make it better than it is. I didn't try to wax it and and give it a spit shine. I, I acknowledged it, David says, in all of its ugliness. I repented. I repented. And, beloved, it's at this point. It's at the point of the utter helplessness when we have, we have abandoned all of our supports, all, all of, the, of the yeah buts, that God rescues us and forgives us our sin. This, by the way, is the consistent message of the word of God. This is the consistent message of the word of God. For example, in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. As long as we are hiding, as long as we're hiding, we remain in the darkness. You've heard me say this to you before. If if you're in darkness this morning, if if you're here and you're engaged in something, and your conscience is tormenting you, You need to tell someone. You need to begin to confess to God. You need to acknowledge it before God in the blackness that it really is. And then you need to tell someone. And I would suggest you need to tell the one person you're most afraid to tell. Tell that person and come into the light. Come into the light. Luke 15, verses twenty twenty one. 21. Here we have the story of the prodigal son, right? Who finally realizes that pig food is not a great place to be. So he got up, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He gave up all his defenses, all his excuses, all his rationalizations. He threw himself unto the mercy of his father. We see it in Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 13 and 14 there in the temple, we have the publican, the, 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 the professional theologian, and the, and the tax collector. We have the, the two opposites, one who is so altogether, so put together religiously. And we have the tax collector. And he's the one with an accurate view of himself. The tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. No defense, no justifications, no yabbats. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, there's only one way out of the darkness. There's only one light shining in the distance, beckoning you to come. It is confession. It is confession. It is to repent To to turn 180 degrees. To confess your sin. And to turn away from it. And that leads us to our fourth principle this morning. And that's in verses 6 and 7. And it's simply this. God is near. God is near to you. Therefore, David says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Notice how David generalizes here, where he says, let everyone pray. He's now beginning the instructional phase. He has been reflecting upon his own experience here, and he's now turning the corner and beginning to make application of the truth of it. And what he is saying is, let everyone hear. Let everyone Pray in the time when God may be found. In other words, it, that the confession is, is, it involves a calling out to God to save. Calling out to God to save him. David would say, don't be slow. Do not be slow to, to appropriate the gift of Grace. For now is the time. Today is the day. Salvation lies close at hand. Forgiveness is here. Partake of it. Pray at a time when God is near. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, writes similar words. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Call out to God. He is near right now. He is close at hand. I think the greatest obstacle to confession is the fear of what will happen when my sin becomes known. What will happen if I call out, if I acknowledge that I'm in darkness? What will happen? You can imagine David thinking about this, I can't admit this. I've taken another man's wife. I've arranged for him to be killed to cover my sin. I can never let this be known. David understands this fear. The fear of of being transparent, of, of, of owning it, of acknowledging it. What will happen to me? I could lose everything. Everything. My reputation, my family, my job. You go down the list. I cannot let anyone know. Notice how David captures this here in the, in the metaphor at the end of verse 6. He uses a metaphor here of, a, of basically rapidly rising floodwaters that, that surge through the narrow confines of a, of a wadi. And they, they threaten to just sweep them away. You go out in the desert and so forth, you see those channels cut through the, through the dirt and they're like bone dry. But there are certain points in times when a deluge falls and, and they're running with water and they will sweep you away. David addresses the fear. And notice his confidence in God here. He says, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. In other words, I will not be swept away. I was not swept away. I confessed my sin, my iniquity. I did not hide and you forgave me. I was not swept away. My point where I was most vulnerable, most aware of the, of the fact that, that my entire life was, was becoming undone. Verse 7 You became my hiding place, you are my hiding place, oh God. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. In other words, you did not cast me out. You did not say, David, I could forgive this, I could forgive that, but there's no forgiving what you have done. God said to him, you shall not die. Your sin is forgiven. God is near. He surrounds us with the songs of deliverance. Let me just say it this way to you, beloved. If you are trapped in the darkness, call out. Call out. Because fifth, resistance is foolish. Resistance is foolish. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. It's possible here in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's possible that these are the words of the Lord directly. It's also quite possible that they are the words of David, the inspiration of the Spirit of God, of course, but that they are David's reflective instruction, and I'm inclined in that way. I'm inclined, actually, to to see this part of Psalm 32 as as the fulfillment of David's promise that he makes in Psalm 51 and verse 13 where he promises the Lord to use his experience, his own failure, and and God's merciful forgiveness of him to instruct other sinners to turn to the Lord. Can you imagine what it would be like if your worst failure, your deepest, darkest failure, became recorded for all time for the purpose of instructing others not to follow in your path of foolishness. David was a man after God's own heart. David was willing and desirous of suffering the shame for the benefit of others. His truth here that he's basically laying out is that it's foolish to resist the Lord in these matters. It's dumb to sit on your sin, to try to cover it up, to pretend it didn't happen, to to hope it goes away, to hope no one ever finds out. The contrast here, in verse 9, basically, Verse 10, the contrast is between someone who who willingly is obedient to God in these matters. It's the wisdom of of turning to God in our sin because only he can give us relief. That's the path of wisdom. And and he does it by contrasting the the irrational animal here, right, in verse 9, the horse or the mule and says they need to be forcibly brought around. You need to put a a bit and bridle in their mouth in order to make them do the right thing. Don't be like that. Don't be like a mule. You're a man. A contrast here is between the path of wisdom and the path of folly. Listen to me now. The path of folly is not so much that we sin as it is that we continue in sin and suffer for it when relief lies close at hand. That's the path of folly. It's the refusal to to go to the light. That's the path of folly. There are none who do not sin. What do we do with it when it happens? Determines whether we are acting in wisdom or acting in folly. God, through the mouth of his prophet, King David, is, is calling to his children to walk the road of prompt repentance. Prompt Repentance. And it's a joyful path. As we see here in verse 11, our our sixth and final principle. Joy is certain. Joy is certain. The the psalm begins on a high note, right? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. It doesn't say how blessed is the man who never sins. It says, how blessed is the man when he sins, who God forgives him. And it ends. It ends with like a bookend and and says... Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. The the righteous ones, those who are upright in heart, are those who have walked the path of wisdom here, who have confessed their sin and received the forgiveness of the Lord. They're experiencing the life-giving joy of forgiveness. To them... David calls, "Break forth with shouts of joy, sing your praises to God beloved this is this is natural to to break forth in in And praise to God for his forgiveness is as natural to those who have experienced as it is for for a a child to, to call out to their parents. We don't have to work it up. The singing this morning, by the way, was particularly good. That's one of the advantages of sitting in the front row, by the way, is I get to hear you and you don't get to hear me. As your advantage. But it was particularly good to hear the voices of, of God's children who have known and know the, the blessings of forgiveness, to, to break forth in shouts of praise. John Calvin writes, wherever faith is lively, this holy rejoicing will follow. In other words, it can't be contained. You can't keep it down. Beloved, these principles here are so important. Simple but important. This is the way out. This is the way out. You know, the amazing thing is it doesn't take long to go through these. When you you stumble and fall into sin, immediately you can can and you should just go through this process. Don't wait. Don't sit on it. Repent and confess. And know again the, the joy of your salvation. Break forth with shouts of joy. May God enable all of us to be quick to repent and restore the fellowship with Him and with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, the the path out of the darkness is clear. Please help us to pursue it quickly. For those here this morning, Father, who have been trapped for some time now, May your Holy Spirit forcibly impress these truths upon their hearts so even right now in in where they sit they may call out for help. They may run to the cross of Christ and find forgiveness and healing. Our Father, as we are to partake of the communion meal here shortly. We're going to proclaim our unity as, a, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and Father, we betray that proclamation when we have unresolved offenses between ourselves. Oh Lord, if there be any here this morning who has something that's unresolved, May you help them to flee the darkness and to make it right. Our Father, I I pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man, that we could combat the deceit and the lies that our own defense attorney would put forward to, to try to conceal our sin. That we might recognize that That is, forgiveness is the path of life in which there is abundant joy. O Lord, do your good work in us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.